0: you can behold the majesty of God, that's what's going to set the tone of all of what's going to happen. Some of you are going to get caught up in little details of revelation, and we're going to end up bickering about something stupid, you know. It's a locust with the face of a man. What is it? I don't know, but if you see one, run, okay? (laughs) What are you, stupid? (laughs) Don't don't stand there. (laughs) The the point is, I'm not going to be there. I got dinner plans, but the important thing is that uh, you, you can be in the midst of all of the debates about the, the, the little thing. If you don't put it together and say, after 22 chapters of Revelation, what I understand about Jesus and his majesty is greater and broader and deeper and richer and more powerful, then you miss the point of the book. Daniel was written largely to give the Jewish people a record that when pagan you takes your students, And throws them into a pagan environment to retrain their mind in a pagan way. That there is a gracious, loving, but gentle, stiff, and powerful way to resist becoming what the world is. And so as a result, Daniel gives you this third box, which is the testimony box. It's the box of what all of these guys said. It's not just good enough to know why we failed. We have to actually know that God wants us to be able to do it well. He didn't just set a standard there so you could. I literally hear people say, well, the law was given to you to tell you that you can't keep the law. That is the dumbest way to look at it I can think of. Because in the scriptures it says this was given to you and it's not beyond your ability to keep. Deuteronomy says that. That's not the point. The point isn't to make you feel worse. How many of you grew up when I did, and you remember the messages where the pastor was re- the preacher was great if you went out feeling wretched? The worse you felt, the better he was. You filthy sinner. Man, I was ready to repent of things. I didn't even know what they were. And here's the important thing. That's not the God that I serve. He wants me to understand that at the end of all of the things he's told me to do, I cannot pull them out off without him. But with him, they are not beyond my grasp. And so when I look at these three things, we can come back to this, but I I just, I need to see if I can wrap this up and bring it down to, I I come to you a time, at a time in the church's life when we are, um, we're significantly weakened. I want you to remember something. The Bible presupposes that you live in two worlds, not one. That Genesis begins with a world that is metaphysical, So that the story of the Bible is that all the way back in time, God was dealing in the angelic world before he was dealing in the physical world. The metaphysical before the physical. We call it the spiritual before the physical. That for you and I, we live our lives in a physical world, but mostly what we see are the physical ramifications of spiritual things. That the real battle is not flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. That the real troubles are happening in the spiritual realm. Smart is the believer who's not just looking at the news, they're asking the question, I wonder what's going on in the spiritual realm where that's showing up. And I tell you very honestly, you can check me by going to Planned Parenthood's site. They launched a new initiative a week ago. It's on their website to give sexual freedom to children of every single age down to infancy. Read pedophilia coming to a, a, a village near you. Am I being an alarmist? No. See, because I just think sinners are going to sin. And I think there's loving people in that organization who honestly believe they're doing good. The, the best level or, or nature of deception is when the deceived are so thoroughly deceived that they're pushing the product because they really believe it's going to help. And honestly, here's what I see I'm at a time in our history where I need to see the book of Revelation unfolding in graphic detail that will help me be a light in a dark place. There are advantages to living in darker places. Something is happening, and you're seeing it happen right in front of you, and it may be hard for us to get, uh, a, can I go right on to the next one or no? Is that not possible? Okay, let me do that. I want to keep going. I want you to see something. We are uncomfortable as Christians with talking about the wrath of God, and part of the reason we're uncomfortable is we don't understand the full grasp of the seven different words that are used for wrath in the Bible, six of them in the Hebrew Scriptures. God has a large um, uh, detail, graphic detail, of what he means about wrath. Let me do this as quickly as I possibly can, but let me start off with verses that are common to you and you already know them. In Romans chapter 1, you are already aware that, that Paul addresses the issue of wrath. Wrath should lead you to kneeling, not anger. When you understand the wrath of God, it should lead you to kneeling, not anger. Now let me get you there. I've got to go around the barn to get in the back door. Just give me just a second. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. You're all familiar with the verse? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against un- all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. I'm doing this on, on purpose, just trying to rush it up a little bit. If we study prophecy... If we study apocalyptic literature, we should get to the place where we understand the wrath of God. But the problem is the wrath of God is not an easy concept to grasp. And if you don't take on the wrath of God, you'll never understand what it is he's doing. So let me start by saying the six common terms for wrath, there are seven total, but six common terms for wrath in the scriptures include some negative reactions God has, like anger, displeasure, uh, vexation. But there's a caveat, and I go through this with my students every year. Guys, how many gods in the heavens are there? This is one you should get right. How many gods are there in the heavens? Is there any more than one? So a one and only God, when he reflects character traits or expressions about himself, are unique to him and him alone, right? That's called anthropopathetic. And so as a result, God alone has words that when applied emotionally to God don't mean what they mean when they're applied to anyone else. So, for instance, you get into every year we get into school and and somebody in the students will say, well, how does God not change his mind? Because it says right here he changed his mind. Or how does God repent of something? And I said, look, Arabs don't have a natural word for snow. Eskimos have six words for snow. If you don't really have it, you, you know, in Hebrew, we call the Sea of Galilee the Lake of Galilee the sea of galilee is really a lake but they didn't have a word for lake because they didn't have lakes they had that when you only have one you don't make a category for it so as a result what happens is when you're dealing with one as its own it tends to be different when it applies to one i'm saying it too many too many words when you describe god whatever emotional word you put on god when god has it it's different for god than it is for anyone else so if god gets angry it's not like when randy gets angry When Randy gets angry, he wants to smack somebody because they're bothering him. When God gets angry, he sends a prophet and tries to correct them. This is not the way I deal with anger. I don't deal with anger by instruction. I deal with anger by throwing something at you or smacking you. When God does it, it's unique to him. Be careful about the expressions about God because they're unique to him. God is angry in a way that no other being is ever angry If I get up and say, I am the greatest, I might sound like Muhammad Ali, but I'd be a liar. When God gets up and says it, it's just a function of truth. He's the only one allowed to say it with that intent because it's unique to him alone. So as a result, what I'm saying to you is when you look into the scriptures and you see these anthropopathic p- p- uh, uh, expressions, these, these expressions of, that are unique to his emotional experience, you, you come to the conclusion that God alone has the ability to feel something. Don't say, what would Jesus do? Say, what would Jesus tell me to do? I'm not Jesus. I don't have what he has. There's things about my life that are not the same. So how do I come up to the wrath of God? I need to look at the wrath of God. One of the words is the Hebrew word avar. Ebrot, ebra, avar is three letters, A, V, and R. In the name Hebrew, or Eber, is is these three letters. In the name Abraham, these three letters occur. It's a word for wrath, but it's not a word for anger. The word for anger is more like, ah, it's the flaring of the nose. (laughs) The word for wrath, this word for wrath, is a word for offense, a barrier, or an edge. This person is standing on an edge. Okay? Wrath is an edge, a border, or a barrier, a consistent principle that when you are in violation of, an effect will follow the cause. Literally, I could make the argument that science's cause and effect is part of the wrath of God. That the consistent principles that if you do this, this follows, that's part of the wrath of God. So let me suggest, if you step out of a 54th floor window on your way down, don't go, it's not fair. Because every 54th floor window you have ever seen anybody step out of in your life had the same exact result. So gravity is part of the wrath of God. Does that make sense? Now, it's not the only thing the wrath is. Wrath is much more than that. But one element that we have to understand is when we say people get sick because of the wrath of God, God says, I put on your body and in your body a bunch of organs. The largest organ you have is your epidermal layer, your skin. And if you put a dirty needle and violate it, there is an effect that comes from that cause. I'm not mad at you. I'm telling you it's like jumping out of a 54th floor window. The last thing that's going to go through your mind is your feet. It took a minute. It took a minute. Somebody went, I just got there. I got it now. Okay. My My point is that avar is the notion of wrath that says some things follow other things. That's what happens. So sometimes God is actually specifically upset with what somebody does. But most often in the Hebrew, many, many, many times, it's just the effect of the cause that because you did this, that's what happened. I told you, by the way, don't do this. My fence is my protective, don't do this. Now, here's the way we frame it. As rebellious people who are mutinistic in our thinking, we look at the the fence and think the fence is the problem. What Americans do is color outside the lines, then move the lines. That's what we do. So what we do is we just change the standard of education and everybody's brilliant. Or we make everything legal and then nobody's breaking the law. That's just recoloring the law. It's not actually changing what people know or what they do. It's just changing the standard by which you measure, measure them. And that's what we've tended to do. So my point is, if you're going to understand the wrath of God, one function of the wrath of God you must understand is that a lot of the wrath of God is just the function of cause and effect. And if you don't want to live in a world with cause and effect, listen, you might jump and you might fly up or you might fly down. You might fall down, there might be gravity or not. You want to live there? Go to Mars. Don't live here. Here, this is the way it works. And it always works the same way. And God's consistently, consistency is part of that. Now, there's different kinds of wrath. One of those wrath types is cataclysm. And people will say, if God is good, why is there cataclysm? Well, sometimes it's an earthquake, a tsunami, a volcano. Um, there's different kinds of things where powerful forces are unleashed, and people want to know why. In Pandora's box of rebellion that was opened in the Garden of Eden and the mutiny, God foresaw from the moment that you do this there will be destruction and death and like Jesus looking over Jerusalem and knowing that one day it would be torn apart and weeping over the city of Jerusalem 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 how often I've longed to gather you as a hen but you would not come God stood at Eden and wept like I can tell you that when he saw that rebellion I'm a dad There is no pain like watching your child do something that you know is going to, they are going to face real trouble. That's going to leave a mark or more. There's no heartbreak like watching somebody walk out and do something. Now, how does that face, how does that help us understand cataclysm? Because students often want to know, if God is good, why is there cataclysm? Sometimes we caused it. I really believe that a number of you have people in your family who are sick right now and that when we get to heaven and ask God, he's going to say, yeah, because you kept eating this or because you did away with the cure. You cut it down and now you don't have it anymore. I made it for you. You just didn't use it. I really believe that if we continue to mess up our environment we will end up with living in a messed up environment and all the problems that come out some cataclysms are caused others are more general and it's difficult to ascribe that specifically but in God's wrath what he's saying is if you do this this will happen some of it comes directly out of Eden some of it comes out of what we've been doing since Eden and cataclysms are a result in the wrath of God in that way In addition to that, sometimes there's just consequential wrath, which is very specific things you do. If you separate sexuality and no longer say that the purpose of sexuality was not to have children, that was never its purpose. The purpose of sex was to bond a couple that might result in a child. The bonding was the purpose. And when the church got on the page of it's only to have children, They created a problem. The problem is that that God had instituted a bond, a physical bond, that if a child came out of, there was already a bond between the two people that put the child together with God's God's initiation there. So the point is that when you separate something from what it was for, you you remove it and consequences will follow. When you remove that, you start creating consequential action. Sex doesn't make babies. God does. And that's why they have God's stamp, and that's why they have something that's important um, and powerful and valuable. There's also eschatological wrath. That's some of the stuff you're going to be dealing with in the Olivet Discourse. It's some of the stuff you deal with in the Book of Revelation and many of the prophets. And then, of course, one of the toughest ones is eternal wrath. Here's the thing. We need to understand that there's a, a type of wrath... That we are already experiencing we're beginning and experiencing it with growing frequency and some of us are not aware that it's coming this is the what, what i would call the withdrawal wrath of god nations go through it as do people withdrawal wrath is god giving you over or removing restraint in the bible men want to wax worse and worse and what restrains them is the spirit of God and the agency of God. Agents of God are holding back. That's why I believe immediately following the rapture, I would not want to be in the legislature. Because what will be voted on in the next round of things, can you imagine if there's not a single voice for Jesus Christ in the country anywhere that truly has an intimate relationship with Jesus and is, is desiring to walk with him, and then we're going to make laws. Imagine the tentacles of influence and how that will change things dramatically. It's interesting to me because in Judges 16, I have a picture of Samson here, because in Judges 16, God withdrew himself from Samson in a graphic way, and it says, but he did not know that the Lord had departed from him, and the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze chains, and and, and he was a grinder in the prison, a, a job for a mule. He experienced the withdrawal of God, but he didn't know it happened when Delilah said, the Philistines are upon you, and she had already cut his hair there is a time when you can operate the institutions that were once powerful but the power will be gone because god's withdrawal of his gracious hand is no longer on them and many believers who have looked to those institutions to be godly institutions will be shocked and dismayed because they will fold because God left. They just hadn't turned the lights out yet. There are whole Christian organizations where the Spirit of God will pull back and withdraw His blessing and the blood flow of blessing. Guys, you and I may go out and witness, but we don't win anybody to Christ. The Spirit of God does. And you can keep on talking, but without the Spirit of God doing a work in people's hearts, nothing's going to happen today. Every time I speak, every time I speak, I pray the same prayer. Lord, I prepared the best I can. I, I think I know what it is I'm trying to say. It's probably, I probably don't, but I think I know what I'm trying to say. I know you were with me in the study. I watched you guide me through this. But if you don't show up and change heart, nothing's going to happen today. I'm just going to talk, and this is going to go on until it's over. And my, my understanding is that right now we are facing a time where we're facing Proverbs one, it's rising. In this. listen, Proverbs one twenty four. I called you and you refru- you refused. I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. You neglected my counsel. You did not want my reproof. I even laugh at your calamity. I mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm, your calamity comes on like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated ca- knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not accept my counsel. They spurn my reproof. So shall they eat the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. You understand that part of the wrath of God is, he says, look, I'm, I'm going to be a gentleman. If you don't want me in the room, I'll just leave. The ultimate expression in eternal wrath is I give you what you wanted. You didn't want life with me, so I will give you an, uh, an endless life without me. <laughs> If you want eternity with me, I offer it to you right now. But we don't have to start when you're dead. We can start right now. Let's have it now. God loves a party, but only when he's the one invited. So, so he's asking, come on, let's do this. And the thing is, there comes a time when God may choose to withdraw from men as a consequence of their defiance. How do I become a testimony if that's now? Because that's a reality that we're going to face. I want you to think about the fence. I want you to think about God having consequences or effects that follow the cause. That he does not create causes and not create effects. He says, don't jump out the window, but the gravity is the effect. And so as we look at it, listen to this quote. We do not smirk at the misery of merrymaking of immoral culture. We weep. Being pilgrims does not mean being cynical. The salt of the earth does not mock rotting meat. Listen to that. The salt of the earth does not mock rotting meat. Where it can, it saves, it seasons, and where it can't, it weeps. There's a tone in the church in the 21st century that we must be careful of. There's a haughtiness of I've got it right, I know God and you don't. We weep far too little. We scold far more often. I want you to hear every prophet as something with a deep wound. I am living in a country that is openly flaunting sexuality at a level that is unbelievable. Part of this, I'm going to be honest with you, I hadn't watched TV for about 12 years. I left the country, I came back, and I was stunned. Can you imagine if we, if we could go back and grab a believer from 1920 and drop him in front of our television set for 10 minutes and say, this is what's playing in the living room of a Christian home today. What would they say? Everybody's following me, right? Our eyes are being so tuned to spiritual darkness it doesn't look strange to us anymore. And I got to tell you, whether you're on the left or the right, you're embracing a a rainbow flag. You know that's true. When Disney has a 14-year-old animated transsexual character on the Disney Channel, we left family friendly a long time ago. And we're coming to the place where as we do this, what we do is we do the American thing. We revise the definition of things we've colored outside the lines the lines don't work so now we'll change them god created patriarchs in a home to have priestly influence in a home we turned it into the nasty patriarchy that we are victims of and then put people in quarantine together in a home and spiritual growth didn't occur because it was neither sought nor prepared for in many a home We have so sexualized our culture that we've become commonplace saying things that I actually, frankly, can't believe that we can say. Let me say it this way. When you see a society that's utterly driven by unbridled sexual hunger and desire, that there's no longer a blush and there's no longer a sense of propriety, we didn't change the definition of marriage. We changed the definition of public propriety. If you don't know that, look at a picture of any parade done on the main street in Key West and ask yourself, is that proper? There's a couple things I want you to see about the incremental withdrawal of God's hand. The first one is there is a development of something called healthy sexual lust. A society that begins to see God's hand withdrawal starts off with this, this, well, let me read it to you from scripture. Therefore, God gave them over. It begins with, God gave them over to the lust of their heart, to the impurities that their bodies that might be dishonored among them. When God begins to withdraw his hand, the first thing that you see in a society is an insatiable lust marinates every aspect of the culture. And what used to be shocking becomes so commonplace that there's no blush left. Lust floods in and restraint becomes demonized while lust becomes uh, a- adulated. It's not only marriage that's redefined, so is parenting. Now we have calls publicly. The sacrosanct notion of preparing and protecting your children is now you're keeping them from what they should really be doing, which is following after their desires. We now have in more than half of the states in the United States today, the opportunity for teachers to privately counsel your child and to maintain their sexual or gender identity separate from the one they have at home and not be in any way bound to the parent to tell them anything. Their allegiance is to the child as if the child knows what's best. That is true, it is allowed, and it is going on in schools around us. I'm not demonizing the schools, we're all a part of this culture, we're doing this. And it'll stop when we say it should stop or it will overrun us, but we will fight it. That's an incremental step. When a society's driven by unbridled sexual desire and doesn't feel the blush, that's the first step. But there's a second one. Did you notice in Romans 1.26, it says, for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. You know what the degrading passions are? It's all about getting rid of shame and stigma. Instead of... Declaring the, the cause to lead to an effect, you disjoint the cause and effect. So as long as we can keep you bamboozled that you can go and have sex with anybody you want and it will have no societal value problems, we'll just create bigger social services budgets. But ultimately, while we're removing shame or we're removing stigma, we're redefining sin. Now, these are not unfamiliar words. What's the next one, by the way? When God gives them over, you make the perverse normal. God gave them over for women having lust for women, men having lust for men. I'm not just picking on a lobby here. I'm trying to tell you something. This leads to another step, and some of you are just coming to embrace the next step. What's the step after perverse becoming normal? The loss of reason. This is the reason why it's perfectly normal for an educated person I'm not even going to tell you who it is, but a very educated person in our society who has a platform can legitimately stand there and look into a camera and say, do you see this mass protest? These mass protesters are out here because they're trying to say it's dangerous for you to go to polls because then you'd have to be together. It's a mass protest! And the person saying it never put that together at all you saw it, go to church, it'll kill you with COVID, march for a reason, and it won't. I'm not picking on the politics, I'm trying to tell you there's a loss, uh, uh, there's a disconnection of reason, and some of you are sitting there going, what happened? What happened is, when God withdraws his hand, and sex becomes a norm, and degrading passions overrun it, God removes reason from their midst, that this is a process that God has defined. When you walk around like this, now some of you are going, well, that's male. That's not true. That's not true. What this is is a picture of a trained mind. I, I spend a lot of time with young people, and here's what I tell them. No, no one may have really, really pulled up close to you and said this, but I want you to know something. You don't have to think like this. You can actually train your mind To think differently as you allow Christ to renew and transform you. It can happen. Because what's happening on our campuses is we're normalizing things that are abnormal and losing the sense of just as they did not see, see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to adukia, to a depraved mind, to a mind that could not discriminate or judge properly, to a mind that could not discriminate because they valued God no longer. Do you know that New York University was recently arguing the immorality of student debt while they were not arguing the immorality of the students sleeping together while running up that debt or getting smashed every Friday night while running up that debt. The immorality statement was about the debt. And while I understand that they may have a point, I also understand that they've lost track of where they are Jonathan Edwards said it this way, Al- almost, every na- almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. We have an, inab- we have an inescapable ability as human beings to re- rewrite what's underneath of us and to begin to retool our minds. As we remove shame and we remove stigma, we actually start talking ourselves into the goodness of badness, the health of unhealthiness. And what ends up happening is all the core values that were important to us end up getting changed. Listen to something that Paul wrote. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7 says, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God. Anybody else hearing fire breathing? Here's the truth. We know that the wrath of God in his withdrawal makes terrible conditions. But we've become the frogs in the boiling pot, and we no longer see the steps toward those terrible conditions. Now, if we're going to do anything, we're going to have to understand that we're reaching a tipping point, and we're going to have to say something different. This is a picture of what the church used to see in the triumphal coming of Christ. Listen to this, Tozer said, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, I hope and pray to God that I will have the courage to stand up for the real Jesus of the New Testament, regardless of whom I offend. I want to start here and just taking my last 10 minutes or my last five or seven minutes, and I want to talk to you about what I think is going to be important for us in practice in the coming, coming months and years, should the Lord tarry. It is my opinion that we are running one of our last laps as a church, I know many others have had that opinion before me. Godly men have stood probably in this room and said it long before I was born. But let me just say that I believe with all my heart that if you're wondering, Daniel says the end times are characterized by transportation and information. I don't know what you're looking for, but I'm seeing a transportation and information age. And when I look into the text of the scripture, what I see is these are the things you will see that are the beginning of the birth pangs. And I'm looking at a Florida that's about to get pummeled with two different hurricanes coming up through the Gulf on the same day to hit landfall in Texas and Florida on the same day. And I'm standing back and watch. I was laying in my bed in Asheville North Carolina and they had the first earthquake in a hundred years the other day and I'm saying what does it take Skywriting? if you don't feel like the times they are a change and you're not paying attention and so when I look at this, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that God doesn't withdraw in wrath without, without offering an invitation to society to dismiss him or invite him. And it's time for us to change our methodology to match with our message that is unchanged what's going on in our world. So what do we do? COVID is, for me, one of the most exciting times because it's a time for us to test run some stuff that we're going to need if persecution comes. Uh, I'm going to take some from the playbook of Lebanese believers. Do you know what you do when all of a sudden they'll kill you if you go to church? Well, for one thing, how many of you say, well, will we you stop going? Actually, you do. Because you start, it, you start doing what Tom Julian used to say. You have to go back over and over and over and redefine the church. What's the church? What's the church? What's the church? I would call pastors. I'd say, what are you doing for church in the COVID? Well, we've got electronic services. That's not the church. That's the service. What are you doing for the church? And so in many places right now, church is three people meeting intimately that cannot meet publicly and many groups networked together under leadership in a local church that's coordinating what's going on. In the first century, it looked just like that. I'm not telling you you have to do it right now. I'm telling you you have to be ready to do it. You have to be able to do it. If the, if the opportunity comes and that's what we need to do, there are five things I would do to exert training right now. The first one, We've got to work on inner disciplines. We've got to work on inner disciplines. What do you really want inside your heart? Is it to please the Lord? Is it to pay attention to, to what he's saying? Is it rehearsing in my mind and heart his word? Do I invite Jesus through, for the beginning of my day and ask for the inspection at the end? Is he the center of my life? If he's not, I've got to begin to work on inner disciplines. Nobody ever gets disciplined by accident. You don't get good at it by accident, but we honestly think if we, if we just live Jesus in our home, our kids will just grow up and they'll just be like Jesus. How's that working? Because my thinking is if we don't deal with the inner the first thing I have to do next week when I start with my next class of Great Commission Bible Institute is say, class is like a storefront where you can display something that's going on, but the real change happens in here the real things are what goes on in the human heart so we've got to deal with the inner discipline second i would say we have to deal with body care i have to be a steward of this body did covid teach any of you that you're not a good steward of your body when given time off how many of you learned about covid weight nobody's raising their hand or no Here's the thing, we've got to be good stewards of our body, we've got to become, because here's the thing, it's going to be important that if I consciously view my body as his and not mine, that I only do to it what would honor him. Look, that body's a rental, don't get used to it, it doesn't belong to you, God owns it. And I've got to rehearse in my mind that I am not my own, but I was bought with a price, because as long as I think I'm mine, I can do with it what I want. Third, I'm going to have to deal with relationships. What are the God-established boundaries of what I can and sh- should share with other people? How many of you are a little bit embarrassed at what somebody who you love shares on Facebook? Anybody know people that need better boundary fences? Anybody know people in the church that need better boundary fences? Are there things that people are sharing that honestly should have been private? That should never have been shared? Because we fail to make best friends, we think we're friends with everyone. All 3,000 of them need to know about the argument I had with my spouse. No, they don't. So, relationship boundaries. The fourth one I would say is that is we're going to need new definitions of reliable sources. <laughs> we're going to have to know where reliable. How many of you are really frustrated that you can't figure out what's true? If you're not, you're. Can we all listen to you for the next seminar? Because we are all sitting here going, we have a tremendous amount of information and I can't tell what's true. I am not a conspiracy theorist, but things are really looking funny. There's a lot of stuff that just doesn't add up. And and at the end of the day, we're going to have to deal with, assuming many people will offer flawed ideas without knowing that they're doing it, we're going to have to be careful about what we hear. But listen, brothers, sisters, we need to also learn to be careful about what we pass. Because... Our testimony is being degraded when we pass misinformation, even if it's done out of ignorance. Let me go for one more and just say, we need to reassess the places of emotional impact. Places of emotional impact. What do I mean by that? Movies, TV, music, humor, all have high impact. One of the things I have to to do Early on in the school year, now, I don't want you to tell the students, okay? But early on in the school year, I take a whiteboard, and I say, um, what did you watch over the weekend? What movies did you go see? And I write down the titles. Then I take out a little thing that I get on the internet about what the synopsis of what that movie is. And I write next to it that this person's stepping out on their husband in in a romantic comedy. And I go through and I write all of the little plot lines. And then I say to the students, what we just laughed at was adultery. Now, when God said, don't do this, do you think he meant, I don't want you to have sex outside of marriage, but it's really okay with me if you put your chair outside of a bedroom and watch other people do it? Is that what you think he was saying? No. But it was funny. One of the lines I have to use every single year is comedy is funny, blasphemy is not. But most of it comes into a Christian home by means of comedy. If I can get you to laugh at it, I can diminish the power of it. And so ultimately, I'm going to wrap this up, but I need to tell you something. I just came from a meeting. I was in Asheville. I went to see a friend, missionary, a messianic missionary, great man, godly man. He and his wife sat there on the porch with us and with tears in his eyes, he said, I have raised my children and I've been a missionary my whole career, and my son, my older son, who's agnostic now, came to me and said, Dad, do you realize how crazy you sound? Do you realize that you taught us to believe that a guy was trapped in a fish and got spit up on a beach? And I looked at him, and I said, that's not what you taught him. You taught him the first line of the Bible in the beginning a marvelous, magnificent, majestic, all-powerful, all-knowing God created everything. And if he's that big and that powerful, the rest of the book is easy. And if he's not, the rest of it looks like mystical tales from the far beyond. And, but if you missed him, you missed the book. Because he's the story. History is his story. And at the end of human history... Signed with the blood of Jesus, this is who I am. Not who the enemy said, this is who I am, is the story. My dear friend who loves his children is watching an adult child stand and shake his fist of God. I believe we're going to have to carefully reset the value of following God's word. I believe that we're going to have to retrain our expectations so let me close with one thought. Following Jesus during every age has always been difficult. There's never been a, a generation of people that wanted to be told they were sinners. Not that I'm aware of, anyway. Anytime you preach Christ and you preach sin, you preach to a, to a cold room to some degree. Is that right? But here's the thing. There was a time when the wind of culture was blowing at my back, pushing me forward. If I stood up and said, I'm going to abstain from sex outside of marriage, there was a culture blowing at my back saying, that's good. That's positive. That's healthy. What was a stroll became a hike and is now becoming a climb. You do not climb with the same gear that you stroll or hike. In fact, man, there's whole stores to sell Stuff just for hiking and just for climbing. There's stuff for that. Can I suggest to you humbly that if the church doesn't retune and retool and redress the next generation for the climb, their strolling wear won't get them up the hill. And we're facing a time when some of us haven't caught up that the mountain is coming in front of us. It shouldn't scare us. It should prepare us. And that's why I think COVID actually is an incredible gift. There's an opportunity for us. This is the best moment in the nuclear family that they've had in the 21st century. In my whole life, we've never had a time when everybody just stopped working, went home, and sat there and looked at their kids. That could be a really good or a really bad thing. But we can't say we didn't have the opportunity. My question is, what is the church going to do to put on new clothing to change from a stroll and from a hike to a climb? Because, beloved, the time to do it is now. Jesus, I, I am so thankful for your word. I'm so thankful for your spirit, and I'm so thankful that you are a gracious God, because if you weren't gracious, I would be incinerated. I know my heart. I know how quickly my mind goes off the rails. My heart goes off the rails. And so I am so thankful that you grab hold of me over and over and over by means of your word and your spirit to quicken me and draw me back to you. Oh God, I pray. I pray that you would commit us not to look at these as distant, dusty books of angry old men but to open up the pages and understand that there is a consequence for the way we behave and we've got to deal with our inner disciplines and we've got to deal with our relationships, but all the while we cannot do any of this apart from intimacy with you. Jesus, we invite you every moment of this day to lead the dance that will be the rest of this day. What a joy it is to love you and to know you. Oh God, draw us to yourself Light a fire and renew within us a hunger and desire to walk with you in joy, the resolute assurance you've not lost interest in us nor the power to deal with our day. And we will trust you. God, already I'm anticipating an opportunity for worship tomorrow. And we would bow and we would exalt Lord Jesus, you who sits on the highest throne of heaven. We're looking forward to a time when the church can gather together, where it can lock arms, where it can say, yes, there's a mountain in front of us, but there's a Jesus within us. And it's in your strength we pray. Amen. Can we thank Randy for being with us today? We have a value statement at the church that uh, says we will do whatever it takes to help the next generations walk with Jesus. Maybe we need to rewrite that because it may not be a walk anymore. It's going to be a climb. Okay, we're going to do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to help the next generations climb with Jesus. But that means we're going to have to be willing to climb too. And so that's a great challenge, Randy. Thank you for that very much. Randy will, will be with us tomorrow. Uh, Morning at 9 o'clock and 10.30 in our worship services, 9 o'clock here inside, uh, 10.30 outside on the lawn.